What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, when I was in the prison, I Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Madera. Bill, today we're going to talk about the Fairbanks Four, that is the murder of John Hartman in Fairbanks, Alaska. And I'm really excited to get your thoughts on this. First, we have a few listener-submitted questions. And we do appreciate you guys sending your questions in. We'll get to all of them. Bill will will answer them in time. If you have the questions, you can send them to our Instagram or Facebook page at Death Row Diaries. And as long as we're on the subject, if you check out patreon.com slash death row diaries or the Spotify app through Anchor, you will get access to exclusive content that is not otherwise available for free so we do appreciate you guys checking those out and sending your questions in so elena asks a question bill she says i stumbled across your podcast a few weeks ago i was just wondering how the other inmates react to bill doing the podcast or do they even care what he's doing yeah, it's been kind of a subject that's been coming up more and more these last few few weeks. You know, when, when Matt and I first started this, but nobody knew about it. It's in, I mean, in terms of inmates or convicts, but over the last few weeks, people out on the outside, regular people who are not in prison, have been commenting about the podcast to different people here on the road. And of course, um, look, there's a couple sides to that. When I first started doing this, Matt and I really just started talking about things that no one knew about. You know, guys who had already been executed here, guys who had died here, and really to get an inside feel about really what they do in prison because you can read about people, what they did out there, but it's not really who they really are. So I brought in kind of an inside scoop. Well, over the last year and a half that we've been doing the show, more and more subjects have been coming up about people that are actually here or have left here. So you have some people in prison, inmates, who, well, they, they don't really care because it's none of their business. But there are people here who, being convicts, uh, would view this as being, you know, in some ways, talking about what happens behind these walls. They would take uh, an issue with it. And usually on death row, how they handle these situations is with violence. Um, I guess in some ways I've been sort of lucky that uh, no one has 
felt so strongly about it that they're going to do something about it right now, that can change it in a split second. So I'm not sure. Some guys don't care. Some guys think it's interesting. Other guys really don't want to talk about it because they have a nefarious um, intent at some point that they're going to activate. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But as everybody knows, I'll be leaving here pretty soon. So it's probably going to be irrelevant. But am I in danger? Is that the next question? Probably. I mean, dealing with men who have murdered before, some of them taking a lot of pleasure in murdering people and killing people. And I think that um, I might be a nice trophy for them to have. But, as I've explained a lot of times before, I really do what I think is right. And I think informing the public, give them information so they can protect themselves and be aware of their surroundings is more important to me than some clown coming after me with a knife. And at the end of the day, I'm extremely hard to kill. Um, so, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I feel like you've used pseudonyms sometimes for some of the gangster types, um, but other times you haven't. And then you've also named by name like quite a few serial killers uh, by their real names. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and most people in prison think that serial killers are vermin anyway, and they should be exterminated. But um, I, I don't really, honestly, I don't really give a lot of thoughts to how other people are going to feel about what I think is right. I live my life by a code, and um, I'm trying to do a good thing here by informing the public and educating the public to things that they would never hear of before. Um, so is it a concern? Sure. I would be lying to you if I told you it wasn't, but um, whether they, they like it or not, you know, my father used to always say, hey, they're going to get over it whether or not. What are you supposed to do in this life? Kowtow to what creepy, weirdo criminal people want? Or, you know, at a certain point, you got to kind of step outside and and uh, stand up to them to a degree. You know, I, I always, I mean, it's easier said than done. It's easy for me to say just sitting here looking out at the ocean. But you, you can't let people intimidate you. And now... There is probably situations where you have to be safe, where it'd be reckless. But in general, I don't think it's a good way to live. You know, having people tell you what you can and can't do. I think you got to essentially stand up to them at a certain point, which I never thought about it. But that's kind of what you're doing. Well, you know, it's, it's really what America's about. Right? We, we as a, a nation have always uh, maverick out of things. You know, and, you know, particular bullies told us that the way life is supposed to be, Americans stood up and said, no, it's not going to be like that. We believe in this and we're going to stick to our guns. Same thing with communism and a bunch of other things. It's a little bit different in my situation, but um, ultimately it does come down to that. Are you going to allow other people to dictate what you're going to do uh, when you think it's the right thing? And of course, my answer is absolutely not. Uh, I'm going to do what I think is right. And it's part of this, it's part of the rehabilitative pro process as well. It's, it's what I believe in. It's, it's um, my debt to pay the society. And if I deem that this way is the way that I'm going to pay it and pay that debt, I'm well, anyone, whether they're dangerous or not, dictate to me what I should or should not do. So I've preached a lot of times in this show. You know, sometimes you have to step into the fray and get your hands dirty. Otherwise, we're staying back 
watching people get assaulted and hurt, and all you're doing is videotaping it. So, hey, sometimes you have to man up, and that is what I've decided to do. And, um, you know, the prison, prison culture has been something that's ruled people's lives for a very long time. That's why you have men that get out of prison and they continue the same path because they never have the opportunity to rehabilitate. Maybe if I can be that guy that shows that it can be done this way, there'll be more people in prison who, when they get here, accept responsibility for their actions and what they've done wrong and then come out to be productive members of society. Well, that's why I like talking to you, Bill, and I think that's why the listeners enjoy the show for that very reason. Trevor wrote in with a question, and he says, I've been listening to you on Ken Mains YouTube channel, Bill, and I like Ken Mains. I've been checking out his channel and your appearances on there too, and very much enjoyed it. Ken seems like a cool guy. Sorry, that was my aside, not Trevor. Uh, he says, Bill, is there anything that I or we, the listeners, can do to help you get out? Well, it's never been my intention to have anybody help me get out. I, I, I appreciate that someone would even Trevor would step up and he'd ask that question. So much appreciated. Thank you so much, brother. I, you know, that's, that means the world to me. Um, but I took on this task more than anything to help you, to help the public, not to help myself. Um, so the answer is, well, I mean, there's a lot of different things people can do, but um, at this point, the most important thing for me is that you're safe, that what I'm talking about and what I'm saying somehow affects your life in a manner which uh, puts you in a better place where you're safer, where society is safer, and that if I can accomplish that goal, or you're at least even more aware of your surroundings and it prevents someone from bringing you harm or your family harm, then I've done my job and I feel that that in itself is the most important part of this. So again, thank you so much for asking. It means the world to me that you would ask that question. Um, you know, I'm really humbled that you even asked that question, so thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate your questions, and keep sending them in. That is at Death Row Diaries, Instagram, Facebook. Check out the Patreon page. Now, Bill, we want to talk about the Fairbanks Four today. These are four men. Um, three of them are of Native Alaskan heritage, and... A lot of people think they were falsely accused of a murder, a 15-year-old boy named John Hartman. This case is personal to me because I am from Fairbanks, Alaska. I lived in the town when this murder happened. I knew the victim, John Hartman, uh, and it's also being developed as a TV show, which I'm very excited about. So, hmm. Where do we start here? So this is interesting because I was working on this podcast called Murder on Ice, and I was doing it during the pandemic because I didn't have anything else to do, and I had never done that. <laughs> and I can't. I had nothing to do. I I had always heard about this case, but I knew nothing about it. Uh, some people I knew would say they were innocent. Others would say they did it. 
but I never took the time to actually research it. And that's what I started doing during the pandemic and doing this podcast called Murder on Ice. And as part of that, I was interviewing a lot of people and just really trying to get to the bottom of what was going on. And as part of that, I interviewed... So I found out that the Fairbanks Four had been housed in a prison in Colorado. And I didn't even know that was a thing. I thought they would be in Alaska because they were convicted in Alaska. But I found out a bunch of things about the prison system. So that's why I was interviewing um, some people like the ACLU, for example, ACLU of Alaska. That's when I talked to Greg from an organization called Initiate Justice. And he said, you should talk to this guy, Bill Nagara. He's in prison. And I gave Greg my number to give to you because I can't call you. No one can call you. And then I got a call from you maybe a week or two later. And that's how we became acquainted. So we can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's exactly how it happened. It's, there's, there's a lot of a side story to that, but we'll get into that when I call you right back. So if I didn't explain it correctly, Bill, Greg, great guy, Greg, at an organization called Initiate Justice, which I don't really align with ideologically, but, you know, I respect them. He said, I I have been talking to this guy, William Nagara, who might be interested in doing a podcast. So how did that work on your end? Well, I mean, it's kind of funny because... It- both of us are kind of looking for a way into doing something that can really kind of help the community. And I had been an, uh, an inside organizer for Initiate Justice for, for a while now. And I, I was connecting with a guy named Lee Gibson. I guess is one of the directors, a great guy. He's a real big mover and shaker in that thing. He'd, he'd been a long time in prison. He got out and really straightened his life out and initiate justice really put him right at the forefront because he was he had been an organizer while he was in prison did a lot of good things to help guys rehabilitate so i asked him i said listen I'm, i really want to um, possibly get a podcast going and you know i have an expertise which is you know particular cold cases serial killers and i want to give my opinion about that and he said well look you know how about you come on and and pitch it to the rest of the board at the uh, initiate justice. And I did so, and Greg was there. So, you know, he said, hey, why don't you give me a call? I called him, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit, and he said, listen, I, I know this guy named Matt Ralston. He's, uh, he does a show called Murder on Ice. It's, uh, it's about the Fairbanks Four, um, but he's also possibly looking for, um, you know, a collaboration. So he gave me really your number, and I think, God, it, it probably took the following day I called you. I mean, we didn't know each other. This is about two years ago. We didn't know each other. You accepted the call. We kind of like told you who I was, what I was about. You looked me up, um, and I think we talked like one other time after that, and we came up with a plan. I, mean, I, I I said, listen, I want to get a, a podcast together. I already had the name for it, and you thought, hey, great idea. I think you told me. 
give me a couple days and call me back. And when I did, you had already had the the domain name for deathrowdiaries.com. You already had the Instagram account ready. You had the Facebook page. It was really what I was looking for, someone that would actually do the production part and we collaborate together. And God, everything else has been history since then because we've been doing it ever since and we're now, what, our 100th episode? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it took a little getting used to with the format. I was pretty awkward in the early stages. I mean, in this day and age, I, I rarely even talk on the phone. You know, I text and I talk to people all the time. You talk on the phone all the time, so you, you have it down. But it took some getting used to. And yeah, it was an interesting thing because Greg says to me, Greg said to me, do you mind giving me your phone number so I can give it to this guy who's in prison? And I thought, uh, not like I have a, a ton of concerns about it, but that seems kind of weird. But I said, sure. And honestly, when you called, I was expecting to hear like some cholo type guy. Maybe that makes me a racist or something. So I was kind of like, where's Greg going with this? You know, but but then when I talked to you, I understood like, OK, you're like a, a very... Um, different and and dynamic person and you have something to say and and so of course i should talk to you but you understand from my perspective it seemed kind of weird at first yeah you would have been really thrown if i would have called you like that guy from Elvira that calls and just breathed on the phone <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know i would have come off with hey man there's Neil. hey it's me it's bill you know Hey, I want to call you because I want to do some kind of show. You know what I mean? That probably would have fit your, your profile, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you could have pranked uh, me for yeah. sure. But yeah, it, it all uh, made sense like when, when I started talking to you. <laughs> yeah, I just look like that guy. I don't actually sound like that guy. <laughs> you know? I, <laughs> but no, I think, I think it's worked out pretty good. I mean, we've had our ups and downs because of communication. There's lockdowns and all the things that we've had to go through. But... I think for the most part, this show has been successful. A lot of people interact with you, tell us how we're doing. There's been a, you know, a ton of downloads to it. And it's, it's really given us a place to really talk about and give information to the public that I always believe, and I know you do as well, they really need. And it, it, it does serve a purpose. And I hope that um, over the next few months when I move to a different prison and we have that layoff period, People will stick to the show and, and, and you know, stay uh, stay tuned because uh, you and I are going to definitely pick up where we left off. Unfortunately, there's going to be a layoff here because I'll be transferred, and that can take between one and three, or even four months of me sitting in a hole waiting to be um, really uh, endorsed to be transferred to a different prison. But once I'm there, of course, Matt and I will pick up the show and keep going. Now, another one of our listeners wrote in, Bill, and I can't find the message. I think I accidentally deleted it. So I'm not I'm I'm not the Steven Spielberg on this, you know. I'm I'm a little bit susceptible to mistakes, but so Bill, Brian Koberger, the Idaho murder suspect, did they get the right guy? Is he guilty? Is he innocent? Yeah, so um I've given that question a lot of thoughts. I've talked about this particular case in a lot of ways. I've actually, before they actually arrested him, they, you know, 
I gave a profile of who this guy was. You know, I, I said he was over five foot eleven. I said he's between the age of twenty seven and thirty one. Uh, you know, I, I say he lived within ten to fifty miles of the of the, of the killing that he did the person that he stalked the person. I said all these things prior to this, and I was pretty dead on. Um, so regarding this particular guy, Brian Kohlberger, the simple answer is they absolutely have the right guy. So, of course, people are going to say, well, you have a lot of people that get arrested, get convicted of the crime. A good example are the, are the four young men, the Fairbanks Four, who were convicted, sent to prison, and then later on we find out, oh, it's the wrong kids. So, why is this different? Okay, so there's a very simple but complex answer as to why this is true. And we're definitely going to get into it in the Fairbanks Four and why those kids were innocent or guilty, and the reason why. So in the Kohlberger case, had it been just the Moscow Police Department doing this, you know, small town, small police force, not really um, versed well in forensic collection of evidence, um, they get political pressure to, to arrest somebody. So in that case, you would say, okay, it's very easy for them to make a mistake. It's happened in the past. It continues to happen. A lot of innocent men are in prison because police forces that don't have the experience make mistakes. And sometimes they just want to put a face to the killer and they rush the process, they cut corners, and the right guy gets convicted. In the Kohlberger case, you had probably about nine to 13 different agencies, including FBI, forensic specialists. You had a number of different agencies working together in collaboration to find the right guy. The reason it is the right guy is because when you have the FBI, CIA, you have special services, forensic services, different uh, experts coming in, you don't make mistakes. They just don't because they check, double check, triple check, quadruple check. That's why it took more than a month to arrest this man and a lot of people were talking bad about me the, um, the process of collecting evidence and, get, and getting this guy arrested. And I said very early on, law enforcement knows something about this case and they're not divulging to the rest of the people. And there's a good reason. And I'd already applaud why when they were asking all these questions, they kept a tight lip on what was going on. They didn't want to tip off the guy until they collected all the evidence. And that's exactly what they did. They got the forensics, they did the, collect, the collection of the forensics in an extremely high level. They waited, they crossed it, they got the evidence of the genealogy, they brought that in, they looked at it. They made sure that every T was crossed, the phone records, where this guy was, the car, what he was doing. They waited for him to throw out the trash. They got that evidence. They watched him at night. They were, he, he was under surveillance for about a month prior to the address. They already had their guy. They were just trying to make sure. So, do they have the right guy? Absolutely. Why do I know it? Because they triple-checked and quadruple-checked every part of it to make sure a mistake would make. Brian Kohlberger is the perp. I'd stake my life on it. Why did you predict he was over five foot eleven? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Why did you predict that he was over five foot eleven? Well, for first, because of the victim, one of the victims in particular was 
athlete. He was a big guy. He wasn't five foot five or three, five foot three. This guy was well over six foot plus. Not an easy guy to take down. Um, so the way the manner that the, the killing was done, how he, how he was able to basically walk to the house and take care of it, he was, I knew he wasn't an expert martial artist. I knew the guy wasn't a, a practice killer. He was a guy living on the streets who decided to do this. So in order to have that kind of advantage, he had to be tall. He had to be lanky. He had to be strong. Strong enough to take down a 20-year-old college student who played basketball who was extremely young and strong. That's why immediately I thought, 5'11 or bigger. And obviously this guy was a lot bigger than 5'11. Again, thank you for the question. So, Bill, the Fairbanks Four. This is four guys. Marvin Roberts, Eugene Vent, Kevin Peace. George Fries. And before we get into it, any general thoughts on this case? Uh, I mean, what's your perspective on what's going on here? Well, as I mentioned earlier with the Kohlberger thing, this is a small police department. Um, you know, when I read everything you sent me about it, and um, I read the, uh, the case itself, the biggest thing that stuck out to me was that they got it wrong from the very start. They, they misstepped everything. You don't look at a crime scene and just find a culprit or a couple culprits, culprits and fit the crime to them. You, in good police work, you have to go to the crime scene, allow the crime scene to speak to you. What does it tell you? What does the crime scene say that implicates or gives you a face to a perp. They did the opposite. They were already had who they wanted, and they just fit the crime to him. There is that. There is the fact that they really, were, from the very get-go, you could feel the racial tension in this case, uh, from the native uh, people that lived in Alaska to the people who were basically um, normal people that lived there, but they were not natives. And there seemed to be a lot of tension between that. So after reading the entire case, um, I mean, I thought about you. I thought, okay, so I know you, you knew John Hartman. I guess so the biggest question I'm sure he's going to ask is, how did you know them, man? How did you know John Hartman? And did you know Eugene Vent, George Fries, Marvin Roberts, and Kevin Pollard as well? I knew John Hartman just uh, as a kid from around town i had a friend that lived in that same trailer park and i went over there a few times i didn't i didn't know him well i wouldn't say we were friends i just had ran into him a few times and he's a nice guy i i don't want to exaggerate that we were great friends or anything but i had just seen him around you know he was out out walking around town hanging out around town a lot as a lot of us were in those years and I didn't know any of the Fairbanks Four. Um, they are a little bit older than than me. I was 15. They were 17 and 19. And they were a little bit older. I certainly could have known them, could have ran into them, could have played basketball with them. I don't doubt that I maybe did. I just don't remember any of them. 
uh, all that well. But yeah, so they were native guys. Uh, Kevin Keys is a, a white guy, but he, all his friends were native. You know, a lot of my friends were native. Uh, I wouldn't say most, but half of them. But he is, for all intents and purposes, I'll just refer to him as a native guy because he's part Native American, just not Native Alaskan. And uh, anyway, so I could have known those guys. They were just a little bit older than me, so I did not know them. But the, I mean, just for example of how close this community is, how much of a small town it is, the night of the murder... Uh, two of the guys were at a house party at a guy named Kevin Bradley's house. Kevin Bradley was on my basketball team at the time. So, you know, that's how, that's how close the whole thing is. Yeah, no, I did. Yeah, this is October 1997. And um, so, yeah, I, I can see how you guys probably cross paths probably at least a couple times a week. So, yeah, I mean, the inside of this town, obviously you know it because you're from Fairbanks, Alaska, and this is by no stress of the imagination a metropolitan city. It's a small place where people know their neighbors. They keep the doors open because everybody knows anybody, everybody. And unfortunately on this night in October of 1997, um, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of stories about what was going on that night, where the guys were. Um, but the end result, correct if I'm wrong, is that Somebody supposedly heard John Hartman or someone yell, help me, help me. And that was basically all that was heard until uh, John Hartman was found basically beat to death, but he was still hanging on to life. You know, he's only 15 years old, um, young guy, promising life ahead of him, and his life was taken from him. Yeah, and that that part of it, always kind of you know gets my gears turning so this woman melanie durham she's staying in a a battered women's shelter i don't know what they call it these days but so she was staying in this shelter and she stepped out onto the porch to smoke a cigarette that's when she says she heard what sounded like a beating i don't know why she didn't call the police she told her you know the, the person running the shelter about it they didn't call the police but she didn't see it she just heard it, and she heard it at one twenty a.m., and that's what we're basing all of this timeline on. That's what the prosecutors and the defense all are are using as the time is one twenty. but she didn't see it, and there are a lot of fights in Fairbanks, but, you know, she heard it right where he was found, beaten very badly, unfortunately, but her credibility as a witness I mean, later she would say uh, they sounded like native guys. And, you know, someone asked her, well, how do you know? She said, well, they had native accents. Well, what were they saying? Couldn't make out any words. So it's like, all right, how do you have... You have 60 seconds remaining. How do you have an accent when you're saying, when you can't even make out a word? Like, does that even make sense to you? No, that's a big problem for me. And, And there's, like... I said, a lot of people stepped up. There had to be other evidence that that would really give me a timeline. And the first one that comes to mind is the coroner. What time did he say the person passed away? And, you know, in temperature, body, all these things are very important. But the person was alive when they found him. So that's going to be a very difficult thing to pinpoint. Let me call back. 
Yeah, so John Hartman is in the hospital. He's beaten very badly. He dies a short time later. So, of course, you know, they're they're looking for suspects, but you don't really have much of a lead here, right? Well, I guess the, the biggest question that comes to mind is, if he was beaten, was he beaten with an item? Was there a, a weapon that was used? Or was it the kid, the, the fists of someone beating somebody? That, that, there's a big issue right there for me in terms of the evidence of a weapon. Well, I've seen the photos, as I'm sure you have, of him in the hospital bed, and it's it's pretty hard to look at. It's pretty gruesome. But it does look like there's the the print, what do you call it? The uh the lugs of a boot sort of stamped onto his head. It does look like he was stomped in the head by someone wearing a boot. And that's gonna come into play because a short time later, oh, and by the way, someone, I, I hate this part of the story. It's unclear if they stuck something up his ass or not. I don't know. I don't really want to dwell on it so much. It, it's unclear if the damage was done, you know, on the street or by the nurse examining him. I don't know. I'm going to say it's mostly irrelevant, although it's it's not actually. You would say it's not irrelevant at all, right? It's not irrelevant. That, that's a, that would be something that would immediately raise my eyebrow. Because you're talking about the accused are kids, the teenagers. And when, first of all, my, my biggest question would be, did you keep George, Marvin, um, and Kevin know John Hartman? Can you establish a motive? That is huge. This is police work 101. Establish a motive opportunity and all the, the, the major reasons why people look at something. You, I have never read anything that says that there is any kind of motive. Have you heard of any motive? No, not at all. The detective Ring, Aaron Ring, when he was interviewing these guys, was trying to make that connection. I don't believe they knew him. Uh, you know, they went to different schools. John wasn't in school, but he, you know, lived in different parts of town and yeah, he just, they wouldn't have hung out, you know, like, it's not like na native people and white kids don't hang out all the time, but you know, I think these guys mostly hung out with native kids and, and John mostly hung out with white kids. Right. So there is no real motive. Um, do people cross paths and someone says something and they get upset? Absolutely. But we're talking about kids here. That, that is first of all, second of all, the possible sexual assault um, with an object. That is something kids normally don't do. Mm. It's something that someone who's much older and more twisted begins to bring that into the fold to sexualize a crime. Of course, this is not a serial killer, but it takes the same type of elements to make a person respond or act in that manner. That is not normal for a teenager who has no priors. These kids didn't have a bunch of priors, sexual assaults or anything else in that in that realm. So sure, that evidence itself, it would raise my eyebrow that these kids are probably not the suspects. The person we're looking for is a much older perp, probably his twenties, 
maybe even early 30s, someone who has experience, someone who's been in prison before, someone who's committed these crimes before. So that would come to mind immediately. But um, that's not what the police did. The police were looking for some kids they could pin it on because of the pressure, because of the tension. And, and we know that the following day, um, one of the young men, um, was arrested along with um, another one of the, the young men. And they were really just interrogating what he was over many hours and many interviews. And this kid, Eugene, was obviously drunk. I mean, he was slurring his words and he was very tired. He wanted to go to sleep. They kept pushing, pushing. And at one point he's saying, I don't remember. And I was drunk. Um, and it was just a jumble of, look, leave me alone. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm drunk. I, I, I don't know. And then, of course, when you start pushing on a kid this much and the police are giving you information that, look, we know that Roberts, as well as... Um, Freeze and this other guy were involved, and at one point he begins to almost kind of like a mixed-up confession that kind of give that they may have assaulted somebody. Um, by that time, John Harbin has died, and now the pressure really mounts to get these kids to confess. Am I far from the the truth there? No, that's spot on. I mean, Eugene, you know, he's 17 years old. He's he's drunk for, and he's interrogated three times over the course of an entire day. And the first two, he's just rambling like he's talking about people that don't even exist. I'm pretty sure he thought he was actually in jail because he did like a really minor, like he sold $20 worth of pot or something. Um so the evidence they get, Detective Ring gets out of this, is John Hartman is found with his belongings scattered next to him, uh, a lighter, his wallet that's been emptied out, and a pack of gum. And so over the course of like seven hours, you know, Detective Ring keeps asking him, did you see John Hartman? Do you know him? Did you run into him? Did you run into him that night? And Eugene says, uh, I might have given him a piece of gum. So that was Ring smoking gun. The kid's found with gum next to him. This kid who said all kinds of things over the course of many, many hours says he might have given him some gum. Is that a smoking gun to you, Bill? No, absolutely not. And I'm sure that was the, again, the first thing I'm going to ask if I'm a defense lawyer is, was the, the interviews recorded, number one? Number two, was he read his Miranda rights? Number three, were his parents contacted immediately? Because in this country, we still have something called the Constitution. You just can't get a minor because he's a Native American and because he happens to be intoxicated that you can just basically bully him for the course of an entire day. Those are huge issues in my mind. And this is something that the law enforcement officer should have done. And this is the difference between professionalism and someone just out to nail somebody. Um, and, and that's a big problem for me. Look, I, you know it. I'm a conservative. I like things done by the rules, either black or white. Either he did it or he didn't do it. Don't coerce people. Don't pressure people. 
if the rules are you have to read them as Miranda rights, you have to call his parents, you have to get permission, that you follow the rules. You only win a case by following the rules. They didn't do that in this case. Yeah. So the other piece of evidence they have, which is maybe a little bit more compelling, is that George Freese walks in, limps into that very same hospital the next day where John Hartman is still alive, barely on life support. And he's got a severely sprained ankle, just say a broken ankle, and he's wearing boots. So does that set off any alarms for you? Well, sure. Look, if he has boots on, he has a sprained ankle, first thing I'm thinking, he sprained his ankle by kicking this young man. Um, and sure, that's, of course, that's something you have to look at this person. But you have to look, to look at him with clear glasses, not through painted glasses, that you're really looking for a perp. First of all, it's the, the boots match the prints around the body. This is Fairbanks, Alaska, so I'm sure there's a lot of dirt, a lot of ground. I don't know if it was snowing at that time. Was it that cold in Alaska in October? You'd be able to answer that question better than I can. I think it was eight degrees, so a relatively cold, if not normal night. But yeah, a lot of people are wearing boots. There's snow all over the place. Okay. Well, there's snow, so were there prints? Did the prints of the boots match the prints and size the kids wearing? And again, everybody in Alaska wears boots at 8 degrees. So is it that much of a stretch that this guy was wearing boots? No. That makes him a normal person. Does he have a sprained ankle? Okay, ask him. Well, how did you get a sprained ankle? If his answer is, well, you know, I was kicking a guy while he was laying on the ground until I killed him, yeah, that set an alarm off. But if he said, hey, I, I was walking, I tripped, and I fell, whatever, you know, people usually like, kill somebody by stomping them to death, and they sprain their ankle doing it. Don't go into a hospital and say, hey, by the way, I sprained my ankle, knowing that that's the same hospital that probably keeps it. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and George would tell them that he got into a fight last night. But the issue is, he was so drunk. So these guys all met up at this wedding reception at the Eagles Hall. And he was so drunk that you have a guy who's very honest that he doesn't even know what happened last night. He remembers, according to him, and according to people who are with him who said he was very drunk, all he remembers is leaving his house. Everything after that is a blackout. So. Yeah, I mean, how do you deal with a, a suspect who's telling you he has no idea what happened? He doesn't know if he's guilty or not. I assume that he, he doesn't imagine he is guilty, but when you're telling him you did this and he's saying, I have no idea where I was last night, I mean, that's just not a very typical situation, is it? Yeah, it's not. And he's not helping his case. Of course, you know, that he doesn't remember where he's at or that he even commits crime or not. That's a big problem. Sure. It's a big problem. And that's why, you know, I always advise um, <laughs> parents, kids, adults, anyone. It doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. Ask for an attorney. The Miranda rights are read to you because people far more intelligent than you are are telling you sometimes law enforcement doesn't always do the right thing. You hope they do. They're there to serve and protect. But sometimes, as we've seen over the last quarter, the last five, 
10 years, they do things they're not supposed to do. Doesn't mean that all police officers are bad. Doesn't mean that we should defund the police department because that's ridiculous. Believe me when I tell you that if you ask anybody on these yards who are killers and murderers, if they should defund the police, the first thing the first thing they tell you is hell no, because they have mothers, daughters, sisters, and and, and friends that are women. That if you had no police, it would be chaos out there, anarchy, and that's what you don't want. So. But sometimes there are some bad apples. For that reason, that's why you need safeguards. And Miranda rights, the right to refuse without an attorney present, are safeguards that every citizen should exercise. If you're innocent, the lawyer can do your talking for you. Again, if you're guilty then, of course, you might need a lawyer anyways, you might as well have one there. So at least it makes the uh, everybody playing on the even field. But um, yeah, it is a problem for me. Didn't have that really an alibi. Didn't know what was going on. But this is where police work comes in to investigate. You know, you do the work to get the answers. Let me call back. So if we take the one twenty a.m. time established by the ear witness. At 1.20 a.m., George, according to, I think, three or four guys who were walking with him, he was walking to the reception. At that time, they stopped into a friend's house on the way to warm up. You know, it was like a 20-minute walk. Um, Kevin and Eugene were in a car with between five and seven other people (laughs) for a total of like nine people in one car. That's how we used to do it back then. That doesn't sound weird to me. All those people in the car said we went from Kevin Bradley's house on the west side of town to the reception hall, uh, you know, probably a 15-minute drive, and we did not see them get out of the car, stomp a guy to death, and get back in the car. Marvin Roberts was at the reception hall. Several witnesses say that they saw him there at that time. He was there dancing all night. Now, he did dip in and out to run a few errands in his car, but, you know, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. So they have these four guys who were all separate guys, by the way. It's not like they were a crew. They didn't hang out all the time. They knew each other, but you hear Fairbanks four. It's like, oh, these four guys were like a, a crew of four guys, and they weren't. They were just four, four guys that knew each other. Kevin and Eugene were at the party that night hanging out with each other. Um, so yeah, so that's what ties them all together. They were charged with murder one within 72 hours of this, uh, beating and their clothes were collected to get blood samples to try and get any of the victims blood off of them. That was never found. Nothing was found on their clothes, so all these lab results hadn't come in yet when they were charged. So, is that normal? I mean, back then even, to 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 charge a case that quickly? Well, I mean, obviously I wouldn't do that. I'm sure law enforcement these days would not do that. Um, but, yeah, I can see. I mean, they, a guy runs out of a store with a gun in his hand. The guy, you hear a gunshot, the person's killed inside. The police arrive, they arrest the guy. They arrest them before they get DNA evidence or they get um, the residue off his body or they check the ballistics of the rifle or the gun. Because, look, 
It happened within seconds. This is different. You have four kids that are being charged 72 hours after the crime with no evidence tying them to the crime. Uh, I would have at least collected their boost and had had checked for for blood. Um, and if, how many boots do they, do they normally have? Ask their parents, ask their friends. Have you seen Eugene with a different pair of boots? Have you seen George with a pair of boots that are possibly missing? The answer is no, those are the boots we have. But these are the three pairs they have. And you check all three pairs, there's no blood. I also would have checked that car that they were all in and the witnesses said they were in this car. Is there blood on the, on the splatter on the floor? Would you beat someone to death by kicking their head in there's going to be particles and, and blood and, and tissue on those boots. And that those boots will leave evidence in a car. Nothing like that was done. So the, the answer is, they were looking already to arrest these guys to close the case because that's what they wanted to do. And they made a mistake. This is obviously a mistake. But you, you had another witness, a witness testify that he saw Roberts and three other men attack another man that night. Of course, of course, that man was high, he was drunk, he's at least 450 feet away. How the hell do you, in the dark, at 450 feet away, high and drunk, tell me that you saw Matt Ralston walk the street and beat a man of death and you can't see the guy at that distance? Last time I checked, I can't see them, but it's dark at 450 yards away or 50 feet away, someone doing something in the dark. It's, it's, it's impossible. But yet they used that evidence, and that guy testified in trial against these four men about exactly that. Yeah, it's impossible in the daylight, because I've done the experiment. I've ticked off uh, that amount of distance and tried to identify someone. From that distance, someone who I already knew who was doing this experiment with me. And I knew the person was standing there, and I could not identify who it was in the daylight. Um, so Arlo Olson was at the reception that night. Everyone was at the reception. He was drunk. He was a little high. Arlo was um, the older brother of one of my best friends still one of my best friends to this day and he he was a fuck up you know he was in and out of jail he had beaten up his girlfriend i didn't know that at the time he was always really nice to me and my friends by the way but i i guess maybe that's the profile of a an abuser or someone with a serious drug and alcohol problem but anyway he would brag to us at that time that the Fairbanks police department was hooking him up he had some kind of expense account or a credit card. He would brag. He thought it was funny that he was so running. He was, he was a snitch. He was he a snitch. Yeah, he was running up bar tabs, going to fancy restaurants or as fancy as there were. And he thought this was hilarious that he was pulling one over on everyone. Uh, have you seen this happen, this, this type of dynamic before? Well, sure. I, there's, there's a couple of cases. I've seen where guys, um, they're informants in prison that just basically, that's, that's what they do for a living. They go to jail, they get arrested for some petty charge, you know, burglary, robbery, whatever. It could be murder, too. 
And as soon as they get arrested, they, they go into people's cells. And this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They memorize people's cases. They read the articles about the person in the newspaper. And they make it a habit to try and get close to that person. Within a few weeks, they make a phone call to, to the district attorney's office saying, uh, look, uh, I'm here for this charge, um, but I have some information about this guy. And of course, the other guy's a bigger fish. And, you know, no fault of the DA's office. Sometimes it's their fault, but sometimes they legitimately are looking for truth. And the guy gives them the information that seems to gel with what their theory is. And they use this guy. And the guy's lying. The guy made the whole thing up. There are cases where other guys have bribed, of course, and a snitch comes along and, and uses that information against them. And I've seen that happen as well. But this case here, clearly, this is a guy who has run up a tab on the police department. He's already a snitch, and he figures, hey, I'm kind of in debt with these guys. This will get me the kind of conviction that I need. It makes me a credible witness or a person that has credibility. And the police love him because he just slammed up four kids. Yeah. I mean, how does that, I know you don't know the specifics of the Fairbanks Police Department in the 1990s, but I mean, how do you even finagle that? Like, is that legal on the part of the cops to like give someone an expense account? Like, how does that work? Never figured that well, that's, out. That's a pain in, well, it happens a lot. It's a pain informant. You know, usually detectives, uh, look, the truth is, it actually works in some circles. You have beat cops who work a beat. They know every neighborhood. If somebody tips them off the stuff, they usually give the guy a couple bucks here there. Sometimes they're actually on a payroll. They pay informants to inform. And there have been cases, we talked about freaking uh, uh, Bulger, the, uh, the Irish guy from uh, Little Hill, um, Winter Hill. He, uh, he was a paid informant for the FBI. He did so for years. So that's a pretty good example that this happens. The FBI has informants they pay big money to. They give them expense accounts. They give them credit cards. They give them special luxuries. They give them a, 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 a card to basically do what the hell they want to do as long as they're informing on the right people. This has been happening since geez, the beginning of time, I guess, when it comes to law enforcement and snitches. Yeah. So these four guys, so Marvin Roberts he's at this reception hall. He was the only one that was invited and actually went or spent a lot of time in the actual building. The other guys were kind of just hanging out in the parking lot, trying to score some pot and, and things like that and drinking in the parking lot. Um, but here's what we have. We have Marvin at this, at this party all night, dancing, having a good time. You know, he's not known as a problem kid. He's known as a really good kid. We have Eugene, who was at a party at the Alaska Motor Inn, a party which Marvin would stop by way later at like 3.34 in the morning on his way home. Um, and Eugene was accused of pulling a gun on the night clerk. Now, the, the credibility of the night clerk is suspect. He was pissed that the party was getting loud and he was calling the cops. They weren't responding because he said, oh, some guys are being loud. Maybe they're fighting a little bit in the parking lot. Cops don't really care. But he tells them there's a gun involved. Cops show up right away. They find Eugene on his way home. He doesn't have a gun on him. 
He's later acquitted of pulling a gun on the guy, but he is arrested and sent to that youth facility. We have Kevin Peace, who uh, was partying and went home, got into a confrontation with his mom. His mom calls the police on him, says he's trashing the house, that he punched her. Later, she says he did not punch her. Uh, she just said that because she was being vindictive and wanted the police to come. Pretty classic woman move, by the way. But regardless if he hit her or not, he was being violent and drunk. Uh, and then you have George Freese, who's out roaming around town, drunk, seen at some bars and stuff. So I guess what they need is a car. That's where Marvin comes in, because these three guys, three other guys didn't have a car. They need, uh, you know, some some narrative in which the four of them were together, jumped out of the car, beat the guy up, got back in the car, because that that is more than likely almost certainly what happened so i don't know is this sounding like a strong case to you it seems like maybe they'd want to interview i don't know the guy who was hanging out with john hartman all night well that and of course i I'd want to if robert's car is the one used i want to i want to take it in for uh, a thorough going through for dna evidence is there blood is there hartman's blood in the car if you stop someone the blood's going to be there so this this just looked like a bunch of kids. They're so rowdy. They were in the system already, and they were in the system for something that happened that particular night. So the cops just focused on them. I mean, it's that simple. They were looking for someone, and they thought, hey, these are perfect candidates. One of them supposedly has a gun. The other one supposedly beats his mother. The other one, it, it just fits the thing of lazy police work, and that's what they did. So, you know, these guys are arrested. In 72 hours, they're arrested. They're, they make, from, a, from what I read, because I read the first um, accounts of this, when it first happened, and I remember they, they supposedly among themselves made a pact that they were not going to let this beat them and that they would write this out. And um, I guess that's what unified them, like the Fairbanks Four, because supposedly this, this pact was made amongst them to just stick together. And... Um, this is, I mean, classic media working against the case or naming a case in sells papers. Back then, there were still newspapers. So, obviously, they are convicted in 1997 of these crimes. A horrible crime of killing a young boy. And they're sent to prison. And um, it's just a horrible situation. And they ended up spending how much time? 18 years in prison. And at the end, they just basically proven it's not them. And even then, the district attorney's office and the police force really unethically screw these guys. At the end, no matter what, they got screwed. Yeah, well, we're going to get into more of the evidence in part two, including the fact that John Hartman was found wearing pants that were not his. And this is a mystery. I want to see if you have any thoughts on this whatsoever but we'll do that next time until then i've been matt ralston and i'm always a girl be safe be aware of your surroundings